Well, would you turn with me this evening to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I just want to read a few verses at the end of the chapter. First Corinthians chapter 9, we're reading at verse 24. Paul is speaking about the ministry. And he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now this evening I just want us to conclude our short sermon series called Marriage, Ministry and Mistakes. And as I mentioned before, the reason we're looking at this topic is because the Presbytery of Asta a committee to write a paper looking at the various aspects of marriage, ministry and mistakes. And over the past couple of weeks we've considered marriage, then we considered ministry. We First of all we asked what is biblical marriage? And we saw that biblical marriage it's a creation ordinance, biblical marriage is a covenant and biblical marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. And that Christ's faithful marriage relationship to his church is what we should seek to imitate in our marriages. And then last week we asked what is biblical ministry and we considered three key areas in a minister's life, his heart, his home and his house. And we noted that it's not a higher standard of Christianity that's expected of a minister in comparison to the standard of Christianity expected from a Christian. But as Paul emphasised to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, he said that the public position of a minister and of an elder, an elder, it says that they are to be examples of godliness to both their congregation and to their community. The minister, as Paul says, is to be above reproach. Meaning that there should be nothing in a minister's character, conduct or conversation that should cause concern criticism or contradiction with the message he preaches. I'll say that again. There should be nothing in a minister's character, conduct or conversation that should cause concern, criticism or contradiction with the message he preaches. But having reflected on this topic over the past few weeks, I've been reminded that the calling to the ministry is a high calling and it's a holy calling. And that calling should be treated, excuse the alliteration, but treated with devotion, dedication and discipline. That's how the ministry should be treated. Devotion, dedication and discipline. But you know, as one experienced pastor, my hero I suppose, J.C. Ryle, he often said the best of men are only men at best. A minister may be above reproach, but he's not above sin. No minister is without sin and no minister is perfect. 
You all know me by now, and you know that I am full of sin. I have many faults and I have many failings. And because ministers are sinners, they will inevitably make mistakes in their ministry. I've made many mistakes in the short time I've been a minister. I've said things I shouldn't have said, and maybe I didn't say things I should have said. But because a minister is to be above reproach, and as I've said, there should be nothing in his character, conduct, or conversation that should cause concern, criticism, or contradiction with the message he preaches. And because he has received a high and a holy calling, you know, there are some mistakes that a minister makes that may cost them their ministry. And this is what we're looking at this evening. What often costs men their ministry in general is that they're too busy. It causes burnout. causes family breakdown. And that's sometimes due to neglect, sometimes due to pride. You also have to deal with, in the ministry, you have to deal with the spiritual laws, the loneliness of the ministry. And sadly, sometimes ministers, they turn to alcohol. Others become addicted to porn. And because of that, some commit adultery. And you might think I shouldn't be talking about this from the pulpit, but this is the reality of the ministry. This is the reality of what many ministers throughout the world face. Because men in the ministry, they are not men who have it all together. They are broken men living broken lives in a broken world. And they're going through the process of sanctification like every other Christian. And yet their calling is to seek to bring a message of help and healing and hope to other people. Broken people living broken lives in a broken world. And, you know, I don't want to dramatise this, but I want us to remember that the ministry is a dangerous calling. That's what Paul David Tripp described his book. He described it as a dangerous calling. And yes, there are many blessings of ministry. It's the greatest privilege in all the world to preach the gospel and to see sinners come to faith in Jesus Christ. But there are also many pitfalls, many temptations and many dangers. And sadly, there are too many casualties. But for the purpose of our topic uh, this evening, marriage, ministry and mistakes, I want us to narrow our focus to the marriage mistakes of ministry. The marriage mistakes of ministry. And I just want us to consider this by using uh, biblical examples of men. We read uh, a couple there. Biblical examples of men who were in the ministry and what we can learn from them. And we'll look at this just under three headings. uh, Adultery, abandonment and awareness. Adultery, abandonment and awareness. So first of all, adultery. Adultery. Uh, We read earlier... In 2 Samuel 12, we read earlier one of the clearest biblical examples of a man in the ministry who made the mistake of adultery. And as we read, that was King David. David, he's known to us all as the man after God's own heart. But in his encounter with Bathsheba, David was a man who went after the desires of his own heart. And as it is with all of us, when we follow the desires of our own heart, It always ends in disaster. Now we might be tempted to think that David wasn't a minister. And he didn't have this pastoral role over a congregation. But as the anointed king of Israel. David's responsibility was not only to rule over the affairs of the kingdom of Israel. David's responsibility was also to lead and direct and guide the Israelites to worship the Lord. Who was their covenant God. 
David's responsibility as king was to make sure that the Lord was the focus of the people and that they were kept away from idolatry. But you know, when you consider the history of the kings, the kings were known for leading the people into idolatry. And the reason the kingdom of Israel finally divided and that there was this downward spiral towards exile, it was all because the kings had failed in their responsibility to lead the people to worship and follow the Lord. And sadly, they led the Israelites away from the Lord and to serve idols and follow them. And so when we look at David's life, we have to see that in reality, David's adultery with Bathsheba was the beginning of that downward spiritual spiral away from the Lord. And I say that because when you read through the narrative of, of 1 Samuel and then into the beginning of 2 Samuel, when you read that narrative, everything is on the up. Everything is positive. David is this man after God's own heart. David defeats the Philistine Goliath. David is then anointed king, despite Saul still being the king in Israel. And, you know, we can see that the Lord is on David's side. The Lord is protecting David. The Lord is watching over David as this future king of Israel. And then we have David, he's crowned king of Israel at the beginning of 2 Samuel. And things get even better for the kingdom. The Lord has the man after his own heart. He has him in place. Then Jerusalem is then announced the capital city of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant, it's finally captured back. It's, it's, they've taken possession of it. They had lost it for many years. And it's brought into the city of Jerusalem. And then David in 2 Samuel 7, he receives the covenant promise about Jesus. That there will be one coming after him who will sit upon his throne and will establish an eternal kingdom. David, he was also commanded by the Lord to make preparations for building the temple. Everything was going so well for David. Not only locally, but also nationally. Because as you pro progress through all these chapters, David, he was winning every battle. And he was establishing peace with all the surrounding nations. Something that had, hadn't happened for generations. Everything was going so well for the man after God's own heart. But then we come to the beginning of 2 Samuel 11. And we're told, then it happened. That's how it's worded. Then it happened. And we're told that late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? But David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. And he lay with her. It was all going so well. David was leading the people to worship the Lord. David was, his ministry was in the best place it could have ever been. But in a moment of madness. In a lapse of concentration, when David took his eyes off the Lord, David fell. David fell. And you know, the message of David's life for all of us, not just ministers, the message of David's life is, take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. And yes, I don't doubt for a moment that David was forgiven. That's what Psalm 51 is all about. 
David's heart, it was, as we were singing, it was cleansed as white as snow. But even though the Lord forgave David, I believe that David's position as the spiritual leader of the Lord's people, it came to an end. And I say that because, as we read in 2 Samuel 12, when Nathan the prophet went to challenge David about his adultery, Nathan said to David, he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. And the Lord says, Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. You know, the Lord had done so much for David. And the Lord was angry with David because the Lord then went on to say, he says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. And you know, when you read the narrative of the rest of David's life, David spent most of his time dealing with family issues. The child was conceived that was conceived with Bathsheba, as we read at the end of uh, 2 Samuel 12. That child was to die. David, in the following chapter, David then had an issue of rape between two of his children. He had a son, Absalom, who wanted to kill his own father, David. David was on the run. Most of his life after that point was on the run. And you know, what's remarkable is that there's nothing said about the kingdom. It's all about the effect that David's mistake in ministry has had upon the Lord's people and his own family. And you know, this continues, it continues all the way to David's death. And even at his death, they're fighting over who's going to be his successor. And you know, when you step back from David's life and ministry, and when you look at it from a distance, what began so good, and what progressed so well, it all ended when it happened. It all ended when he looked at Bathsheba. David's adultery with Bathsheba brought his ministry his family life, and even the Lord's people into chaos and confusion. And you know, it's no wonder Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. And that's what happened with David. There was this progression of sin. It started with a look. The look progressed to lust. Lust led to laying with Bathsheba. There was a progression of sin. And this is why Jesus, he went on in the Sermon on the Mount. He went on to emphasize the need to flee from sin and to separate yourself from the temptation of sin. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's far better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, says Jesus, cut it off, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. And you know, Jesus stressed the need to flee from sin and to separate yourself 
from temptation and the risk of temptation. But more than that, Jesus went on to say, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now I want to explain that when Jesus discusses divorce, he's speaking in reference to Christian marriage. The marriage between two Christians. And I say that because the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to those who enter the kingdom of heaven. The Sermon on the Mount is for those who are Christians and they want to live Christ-centered lives. It doesn't strictly apply to the unconverted because they're still outside the kingdom. But you know, Jesus, he gives further clarification on this in Matthew chapter 19. When the Pharisees, they came to Jesus and they asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And at that time, well, men were divorcing wives for any reason whatsoever. Uh, not for the serious sins of adultery, but for the most trivial things like not being a good cook or not keeping the house tidy. They would just get rid of their wife. And so in response to the Pharisees, Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his, his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So says Jesus, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And the Pharisees, they go on to say to Jesus, why then did Moses give one to, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send it away? And Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And then Jesus, he reiterates in Matthew 19, he reiterates the Christian teaching on, Matthew, on marriage from the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And so the Bible is clear. A marriage between two Christians is not to end except on the grounds of adultery. And in the case of adultery in the ministry, the minister is to be removed from his position. And that might seem harsh, but we want, must remember that the minister or the elder, as we've said before, they hold a position of example to the congregation and to the community. And I was reading an article on this, and it said, if a pastor must be removed, then the church must remove him. We must be jealous for the name of Jesus, he says, and be convinced that we do great harm to the church and even to the leaders themselves when we leave men in ministries when God has made it obvious that he wants them removed. And so one of the sad mistakes of ministry in relation to marriage is adultery. But the other, as we said, is abandonment. So adultery, abandonment. You know, when we're referring to the similarities between parents and their children, we often use phrases like the apple that didn't fall far, far from the tree or like father, like son. 
And that was certainly the case with David and with Solomon. Because we not only read earlier about David's adultery with Bathsheba, we also read about Solomon's abandonment of the Lord. And like father, like son, Solomon was used mightily by the Lord. Solomon built the palace in Jerusalem. Solomon built the temple. Solomon had great wealth. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And yet Solomon acted so foolishly. And his foolishness and his abandonment of the Lord, it led to the division of the kingdom. Because his two sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, they divided the kingdom. And you know, when you look at Solomon's life and his ministry as one of the kings of Israel, he also reached great heights, just like his father. He received wisdom and riches, as we said. He saw the glory cloud of the Lord come and dwell in the temple. He had people from all over the world coming to visit him, like the Queen of Sheba. Solomon reached great, great heights in his life and ministry. But he threw it all away when he abandoned the Lord. And when you read the narrative of 1 Kings, you see that Solomon's life and ministry, like David's, it was all on the up, all going positive. But then you come to the opening verses, as we read in 1 Kings chapter 11, and we're told, now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, they were Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But then we're told Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives and princes, princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. His wives turned away his heart. Solomon, you could say he was guilty of mass polygamy. But you know, marriage, as we know, was ordained to be between one man and one woman. But polygamy, by the time you come to First Kings, it was something that was common at the time. David had eight wives. But you know, polygamy had only become common during the period of the judges. That was when the Israelites started marrying foreign wives. And by marrying foreign wives during the period of the judges, they not only adopted the foreign practices of idolatry, they also adopted the foreign practices of polygamy. And that's where polygamy started. It started when Israel as a nation was in a bad place spiritually. It all started when Israel was in a bad place spiritually. And you know, it seems that if I can say it, polygamy will be the next agenda for our government. Because we have people, well, they're heterosexual, we have lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, gender fluid, non-gender, all these things. We have the whole lot, so the next one will be polygamy. And you know, you can see it creeping in already. Last night, just before the news came on, on the BBC, I saw an advert of a new TV series that's just about to start. It's a TV series called Wonderlust. And the programme, I don't know if you saw the advert or the trailer, it's about a couple who seek to remain married, but they want to experiment with other people. They want to go out on dates with other people and start sleeping around with other people, but remain married. And you know, the media, it's so powerful because they're trying to normalise something by 
putting it in front of us in our TV screens. And then eventually they'll push it upon us in real life. And if you challenge it, well, that's just discrimination. You know, my friend, the world we live in, it's a sick and twisted place that's corrupted by sin and the fall. But you know, it's often been thought that the reason Paul and Timothy, the reason Paul said to Timothy that a pastor who is to be above reproach must be the husband of one wife. They all, people often say that Paul said this to Timothy because of polygamy. But that's not true. Although polygamy was an issue in the past, the issue that Timothy was facing, as we read last week in 1 Timothy 3, the issue that Timothy was facing for both pastors and elders was the issue of marital faithfulness, which of course was Solomon's problem. Solomon didn't remain faithful to one wife. He had many foreign wives and they all led him to abandon the Lord completely. And so when Paul emphasized the marital status of a minister or an elder, he said that because of his public position, he is to be faithful to his wife throughout their marriage. Throughout their marriage. He's not to have any other relationships outside his marriage relationship. It's not to go near anyone else. And you know, just to bring another passage, it's actually in just the previous chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, they were a church surrounded and infiltrated by debauchery and dishonesty. And when Paul addressed issues on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, he first of all said that I wish that everyone was like me, single. And then he says to the unmarried and widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with lust. But then Paul, he went on to say, he says, To the married, I give this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Paul makes clear that a marriage between two Christians who are one in Christ, Paul says that their marriage should not be ruled, ruined by marital unfaithfulness. Their marriage should not be ruined by the whim that they can't be bothered being together in their marriage anymore. You know, that's not a valid reason to end a marriage. And we, you know, we can't be taking our, our lead from the world and how the world conducts themselves. And what the world does. And how the world thinks. Because the world is not the only rule to direct us. The word of God is the only rule to direct us. On how we may glorify God and enjoy him forever. But you know it was then that Paul just as an aside. Paul say, he goes on. He goes on in the chapter. In verse 12 onwards if you're looking at it. He said that for a couple where one is a Christian and the other is not a Christian. They're not one in Christ, he says. And they will, they will inevitably be this strain upon their relationship. And Paul says that if the unbeliever consents to continue the marriage, they should not divorce. But if not, they are free to go. And you know, Paul's teaching on marriage between Christians, and not only for a minister and his wife, but for every Christian marriage, is that their marriage must be above reproach. 
There must not be adultery or abandonment, but fidelity and faithfulness until God shall separate them by death. There must be faithfulness. And so as ministers, as elders, as Christians who are married, how do we combat adultery? How do we combat abandonment? We do it with awareness. We do it with awareness. That's what I'd like us to consider lastly. Awareness. When the Apostle Peter wrote to the early church about the importance of faithfulness in marriage, he said, Husbands, dwell with your wives, giving honour to them as the weaker vessel. And Peter said that there has to be faithfulness in a marriage. There has to be openness and honesty. There has to be care, compassion and communication. But as a minister and and elders, these characteristics, they have to be evident in our lives as an example to others, to the congregation and also the community. We need to live consistent Christian lives before an onlooking world. We need to dare to be a Daniel. Because Daniel, another servant of the Lord, and Daniel was faithful. Daniel was consistent. Daniel was a godly witness. Daniel was a servant of the Lord who lived his life above the reproach of people. Because, you know, when people encounter trouble in their lives, you remember in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar's feast, when the writing was on the wall, the only person who wasn't there at the feast was Daniel. Who was the person they called for? But Daniel. That's the person they turned to. And they turned to Daniel because Daniel was this faithful and consistent witness among the the world around him and the people, they were constantly aware of him, that he was so different to them. And that's because, you know, Daniel himself, he was always aware of the dangers of temptation and succumbing to temptation. Another faithful servant of the Lord was Joseph. You remember Potiphar's wife. She wanted to sleep with Joseph. And she repeatedly tried to tempt him into sin. But Joseph, who was aware of the dangers of sin and aware of temptation, how did Joseph deal with it? He fled. He ran. Joseph ran from danger. And Joseph ran not because he was married, but because he knew that his ministry and his service to the Lord was a holy calling. You know, I know the time has gone, but I just want to bring this study of marriage and ministry and mistakes to a close. And I want just to read two sections of the larger catechism. The larger catechism, it gives such depth and detail on the doctrines of the faith. And Catechism 138, the larger catechism, it asks, What are the duties required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. It says, The duties required in the seventh commandment are chastity in body, mind, affections, words, and behavior, and the preservation of it in ourselves and others, watchfulness over the eyes and all the senses, temperance, keeping of chaste company, modesty in apparel, marriage by those that have not the gift of continency, marital love, cohabitation, diligent labor in our callings, shunning all occasions of uncleanness, and resisting temptations thereunto. Then the next catechism, following on from the duties required by the seventh commandment, uh, the catechism 139 asks, what are the sins forbidden 
in the seventh commandment. The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment, besides the neglect of the duties required, are adultery, fornication, rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications, or listening thereunto, wanton looks, impudent or light behaviour, immodest apparel, prohibiting of lawful and dispensing with unlawful marriages, allowing, tolerating, keeping of stews, and resorting to them, entangling vows of single life, undue delay of marriage, having more wives or husbands than one at the same time, unjust divorce or desertion, idleness, gluttony, drunkenness, unchaste company, lascivious songs, books, pictures, dancing, stage plays, and all other provocations to or acts of uncleanness, either in ourselves or others. And as you can see, it's a comprehensive list. And I'd encourage you to read it for yourself when you go home, because they're all all referenced by Scripture. In other words, it all comes out of the Bible. It's all there in the Bible. But do you know what those catechisms say to me? It says that marriage is a holy calling. And without doubt, ministry is a holy calling. It's not easy. It's not hard work. It's hard work, I should say. It takes devotion. It involves dedication. And it requires discipline. And that's why Paul concluded 1 Corinthians chapter 9 with a statement about ministry. The whole chapter is about apostleship. And Paul is talking about the need for devotion, dedication and discipline. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You know, marriage, ministry, and mistakes. It's a solemn topic. But you know, the Bible is clear. There should be nothing in a minister's character, conduct, or conversation that should cause concern, criticism, or contradiction with the message he preaches. The motto of the minister, this should be my motto, as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 9, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So may the Lord bless these thoughts to us. Let us pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we realise that thy word, it is the only rule to direct us on how we may glorify and honour thy name. And help us, Lord, we plead, not only in our marriages, but also in our ministries, our daily lives and our daily walk, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel, We realise, Lord, that we faint and fail. We are those that are so weak and subject to temptation. But help us, Lord, to be like Joseph, who fled every 
every temptation that was put before him. Help us, Lord, to keep our minds focused upon Jesus. Help us to serve thee aright. Help us to live as light in darkness. Help us, Lord, to awe to honour thy name. Bless us, Lord, as those who are married. Protect our marriages, we plead, that we know that the evil one, he goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And, Lord, we have seen many breakups in recent years and the pain and the heartache that that causes. And, Lord, we pray for healing, for help, for hope. We pray, Lord, that thy grace would always be sufficient. We pray, Lord, for ministries that are struggling, that thine hand would be upon thy servants. Oh, protect us, we plead. Be a wall of fire around us, that we would be as those, Lord, who are found on the last day, giving, giving thee the honour and the glory and the praise that thou dost deserve. Guard us, we plead. Watch over us, we ask. Continue with us, Lord, and help us to keep looking to this Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. Go before us then, we, we ask, for we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <clears throat> Bring our service to a conclusion by singing the words of Psalm 51. Psalm 51, page 281, We're picking up just where we left off, verse 8, and we'll sing down to the verse mark 13. Psalm 51 at verse 8, of gladness and of joyfulness make me to hear the voice that so these very bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. And down to the verse marked 13, how David, from his experience, he wanted to teach others. And in one sense, David is warning us. He's warning us to take heed lest we fall. So he says, Then will I teach thy ways unto those that transgressors be, and those that sinners are shall then be turned unto thee. So Psalm 51 from verse 8 down to the verse marked 13. To God's praise.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, now and forevermore. Amen.